chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. Now, when I was in seminary, they, they taught us that when you, when you give a sermon, and if you've been in any kind of speech class or what have you, they've probably told you that before your, your sermon or your message, um, what you want to do is you want to provide a hook. Right, something to grab the something that's going to grab the audience's attention, and we're going to talk. Perhaps humor could be a good way to grab your audience's attention. You know, tell a joke or a funny story or something lighthearted, something that's going to uh, grab the attention. Or perhaps you might use um, the tool of controversy, present a controversial statement, which you are then going to explain later on. But something that's going to grab their attention, or perhaps. Um, you could present a question or a dilemma that's going to get people to think and they're going to say, I don't know, that is a tough, that is a qu- tough dilemma. I don't know quite how I would answer that question. And then the speaker is going to go and uh, talk about how that dilemma gets resolved. Well, we're getting ready to look at Peter's first sermon um, after Pentecost and there is an incredible hook. Peter didn't provide the hook. It was the Holy Spirit who came with the sound of a rushing wind and tongues of fire resting over the individuals. And then those individuals began to speak in other languages about the great things of God. And it drew quite a crowd. And they began to ask, what does all this mean? That's probably like maybe the greatest hook ever. Peter didn't have to think of it. Because that's usually one of my hard... One of my most difficult, how oh, is there going to be a hook? What am I, how am I going to introduce my message? Peter is just sitting there minding his own business. The Holy Spirit comes, sounds like a rushing wind, fires and tongues of fire resting upon the people. Um, they began speaking in other languages, declaring the great things of God. And people asked the question, what does this mean? This is kind of the background then that we are going to come to. So let me look, uh, introduce Peter's sermon because... We're going to spend at least the next, at least one more week, but perhaps two or three more weeks looking at Peter's sermon. And of course, you're going to say, well, Peter probably preached this sermon in just a few minutes and you're going to spend two or three weeks on it. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm not divinely inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit. I can just comment on what the Spirit has inspired. So, and I'm a preacher, you know, we got to pick things apart. So anyways, Peter's sermon, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at Peter's sermon, but I want to give you just a general outline as to how this looks, or at least how I'm going to approach it. And we see Peter's sermon divided into two big portions. The first portion we'll look at today, and what he's talking about is that the the Messianic age has come, that the age of the Messiah has come. And we know that the age of the Messiah has come is because the out because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people. People were looking for the Messiah, and they knew that when Messiah come, Messiah would be the one who has the Holy Spirit and imparts the Holy Spirit. That he is the one who possesses the Holy Spirit and he gives the Holy Spirit. So the fact that um, so Peter is going to say, "Listen, the Holy Spirit has come." This is evidence that Messiah has come. You see the Holy Spirit, that is evident, that makes it evident that the Messiah has come. The next question, and this is the second part of Peter's sermon, is, well then, who is the Messiah? 
if this is the messianic age in which the Spirit is poured out, who is the Messiah? And Jesus is going to say that Jesus, or Peter is going to say that Jesus is the Messiah. How do you know that? Because God raised him from the dead. This is the messianic age, evidenced by the fact that the Holy Spirit has come. If this is the messianic age, then who's the Messiah? Jesus is the Messiah, evidenced by the fact that God has raised him from the dead. So that's just kind of the general outline. That'll be the direction that I go over the next two or three weeks as we look at um, this sermon. So I want us also, I also want to remind us of something that I, I talked about a little bit next a little bit about last week, and that is how we need to approach this passage of text. Remember that, like all texts, like everything in the Bible, we need to understand it as it fits into the entirety of the Bible. But this is especially true when we're dealing with historic narratives. Historic narratives can, can sometimes be difficult to apply application, to preach, to find out what their meaning, what is their, their, their meaning, um, especially their overall meaning. But we need to remember that this day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous things that took place and Peter's sermon are not done in isolation. But rather, they are part of a big story. The big story, of course, is the Bible, which is that God is redeeming people from their sins through the person of Jesus Christ who will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we might put that as a big story of the Bible. And this particular passage of text fits into that grand theme, that overall theme of the Bible. If we take a passage of text and and, and, and isolate it, we can come up with all sorts of odd understandings. But when we understand that this is a part of the big theme of the Bible, and I think I explained, like last week, when you're reading a book, and you read a paragraph in the book, that paragraph by itself may make sense, but if it's not connected to the rest of the book, you may not fully understand what's being said. And so if all we do is take this passage of text and disconnect it from the rest of Scripture, we may come up with errant understandings of what's going on. So I want to make sure that we fit this into the entirety of Scripture. And one of the reasons why we want to do that is because that's what Peter does. When Peter is explaining these events, the people are saying, what does this mean? Peter says, well, this isn't just something that happened by itself. Rather, it fits into the entirety of what God has been doing. So, I think if Peter does it, we would be wise to do it as well. So, let me just make a couple of uh, general overviews. As Peter is going to be preaching, let me give you just a few general overviews of of what we should be paying attention to. Then we'll read our text and then we'll, we'll look at it a little bit more detailed. So as Peter is preaching, this is an overview, just a general overview of what's going to happen today or what we're going to look at. First of all, Peter is going to refute the mockers and answer the question, what does this mean? So people have heard the sound of a rushing wind. Remember, they didn't, he- they didn't feel the wind. They just heard the sound of the rushing wind. They, there were tongues of fire. And then people heard... 
the disciples, the 120, speaking in other language, speaking in their own dialects that they had not learned. And they're asking the question, what does this mean? And some people said, well, I'll tell you what it means. It means they're drunk. So Peter's going to refute the mockers and explain what this means. So that's kind of what the direction we're going to go today. Peter's going to refute the mockers and then explain what does all this mean? The second thing we should be very careful to do, and that is not to miss the main point. Because there's a lot of things that, that happen in our text, both last week and this week, that can um, cause us to miss the big point, or the main point, or the most important point. Because we can get wrapped up in the supernatural, which definitely happened. The sound of the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in unknown langu- or unlearned languages. And Peter's then going to talk about things like prophecy and the sun turning dark and the moon turning blood red. And we can get wrapped up in that. And those are important points. But if we miss the main point, verse 21, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, we have done a disservice to the text. The text is about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is not so we will, we will address all of these miraculous and supernatural events. But the main point of the text And the main point of Peter's sermon is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because at the end of Peter's sermon, people say, what must we do to be saved? And 3,000 people are added to the church that day. This sermon is an evangelistic sermon. It is for the purpose of bringing men and women, women to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let us not miss that. If we do, we, I believe, we have done a disservice to the text. And then another overview or observation that I have about this is that we should not neglect or forget the primacy of preaching. The importance of preaching, because this, as I said, is an evangelistic sermon. And that salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. Understand that salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. So on the one hand, salvation does not come through the supernatural works or the supernatural events that happen. The supernatural events that happen are important to what's going on, but those supernatural events save nobody. In fact, nobody has ever been saved by a miracle. Ever. Why? Because miracles don't save. What saves? The gospel. And Paul is very clear that we need to preach the gospel. And this is why we see Peter preaching the gospel. There just wasn't a miracle. And then Peter said, well, figure it out. You should, you should get saved simply on, on the basis of a miracle. The primacy of preaching. And one of the reasons I, I put this down is because periodically um, somebody rises up, somebody popular, somebody influential, or somebody who has a name says, well, you know, in our churches we need to do away with preaching or we need to minimize the preaching aspect of our services. After all, um, that's not the way people learn. We learn in small discussion groups and we have to get together and have discussions. And rather than having what they would say, a sage on the stage who, who disseminates some 
um, monologue and everybody sits and listens, that's not really valuable. I would disagree, um, not only because, um, well, I would disagree because the Bible has and demonstrates the primacy of preaching. When this miracle and event happened, Peter didn't say, let's have some small groups and discuss. He got up and he proclaimed the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. And many did. So, you're part of this church. We will continue to to, um, recognize the priority of preaching. Because that's how people are saved. All right. So let's look at our text today. Follow along with me as I read in uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. This is the first part of Peter's sermon, and it's awesome. One of the best sermons ever preached. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the Lord Before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. So Peter begins, there are are two responses to these miraculous supernatural signs. And the first one is, is, what does this mean? And the second one is, I'll tell you what it means. It means they're drunk. Peter, first of all, discards or deals with the mockers, and he says, no, we're not drunk because it's only the third hour, so I think it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Now, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, I think I got a lot of friends, or perhaps I was one of those who was drunk before nine o'clock in the morning, or perhaps even um, never sobered up from the night before. But we're talking about um, good Jewish men who are there for the day of Pentecost, and oftentimes they would fast in the morning uh, until the prayers and their morning devotions were finished. So Peter is saying, this just doesn't happen. You know they're not drunk because it's only nine in the morning. People who do their drinking get drunk at night. It's only nine in the morning. They are not drunk. So he just neutralizes the hecklers and gets down to what does this mean? And basically he says this. It comes out best in the King James. He says, this is that. This is that. I love that phrase. This is that. This is what Joel talked about. You should not be surprised. You should not be um, caught off guard that this is happening because your prophets have declared that this day would come. The things you've been reading about, the thing that you've been looking forward to, the thing that you've been hoping, the things that, that you have been thinking about are going to occur one day. This is that. It's happening. God's word through Joel, the prophet, is coming to pass. These are the last days, and in the last days, it will be God declares. So, first of all, we should note that Peter understands 
that whatever's going on is going on because these are the last days. And when we, as Christians, understand the last days, the Bible speaks of the last days in a lot of different ways. But oftentimes, Christians um, have this errant idea that the last days simply or exclusively refer to maybe the last seven years of history or perhaps the last three and a half years of history or perhaps maybe the last very short period of time in history. And it may have, in some cases, that word, those words, last days, may have that implication in places. But the overall understanding of these last days in the Bible has to, return, has to refer to the time from the coming of Christ to the time that he comes again. In other words, these are the last days right now, today. February 3rd, 2019, we're living in the last days. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that God in the past has spoken to the fathers through the prophets in various ways, but in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And so throughout the Bible, especially throughout the New Testament, we see that right now, today, we are living in the last days. Well, somebody says, do you think these are the last days? You can say with certainty. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if that's going to, the last days are going to last, you know, another hundred years, thousand years, 20 minutes. I don't know. But these are the last days. And he is saying, in these last days, it shall be in the last days, God declares. Uh, and I, let me just stop there. This is God's word. Whatever is going on, God has divinely decreed it. This is not Peter's idea. Actually, what we see is Luke is recalling what Peter said, who recalled what Joel said, who recalled what God said. So this is really just a chain of command goes back to God. God spoke to Joel. Peter interpreted Joel. And Luke is recording Peter. But understand... These, whatever's going on, this is God's divine decree that in the last days, these signs that you are seeing are the God, the divinely ordained signs that God has said is going to happen. So, but in these last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh. What is God going to do in the last days? He's going to pour forth his spirit on all flesh. And this idea of pour has to do with a torrential downpour. It is not a little trickle. It is not a little stream running along. It is a torrential. It's not even like what we're seeing today. It is a torrential downpour. It is the flash flood. It is the overwhelming flood of God's spirit. And Peter is saying, this is that. What Joel said, that God is going to pour forth in, in, in abundant, lavish ways, this is that. So what you're seeing is what Joel said, I'm going to pour forth my spirit. The next thing we should ask is, or the next thing that we want to identify is if God is going to pour forth his spirit, upon whom or what is God going to pour forth his spirit? Well, he says, all flesh. Let me just, in case... There's, so that there's no confusion. When we see all flesh, it does not 
literally mean all flesh. In other words, he is not going to pour forth his spirit on dogs and cats and elephants and rhinoceri. Is it rhinoceroses or rhinoceri? <laughs> he is also not going to pour forth his, he also does not pour forth his spirit on unbelievers. All flesh has to do with those who are followers of Christ. After all, who did the Spirit come upon? The 120 who were in the room, they were the disciples of Jesus Christ. But Joel goes on and explains what all flesh is. Your sons and your daughters, your male and your female, your young and your old. In other words, there is no age, gender, or social boundary by which God uh, will limit God in pouring out His Spirit. Anybody who believes the gospel, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, regardless of your social standing, God pours forth his spirit. There is no believer for whom God will withhold the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. So, To the native in New Guinea and the Wall Street power broker, I will pour out my spirit. To the homeless woman living under a bridge, alone and scared. To the most decorated and highly regarded professor in the most prestigious university, I will pour forth my spirit. And so, what is God going to do in these last days? He's going to pour forth his spirit on all flesh, that is, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of social standing. That's what he means by all flesh. And when I do that, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And your male, even all my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So we need to probably deal with this issue of prophecy just a little bit. And... Um, Here, remember, let's understand the context. Peter is saying that this is that. Peter is saying what you are hearing is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. What are they hearing? They are hearing men and women speak in unlearned dialects of the great deeds of God. And Peter is saying this is prophecy. So whatever the New Testament has to say about prophecy, and it says quite a bit, whatever prophecy may be in the New Testament, here it is the intelligible speech declaring the mighty acts of God. It is people declaring God's mighty acts. They are declaring it in unlearned languages. But whatever it is, here, Peter is saying, what you're hearing, these people speaking in other languages, and you're hearing them declare the mighty works of God, and you're saying, what is this? Peter is saying, this, 
to speaking in unknown languages and dialects and you're hearing the mighty works of God. This is what Joel talked about. This is the prophecy that Joel talked about. So whatever's going on here, they're speaking in other languages and declaring the mighty works of God. Peter's understanding is fulfilling Joel's prophecy of your young men dreaming dreams and your old men um, having visions and your sons and your daughters prophesying. This is being fulfilled right now. So, how do we understand this? And I wrestled with this. You should know sometimes that preachers wrestle over their texts. All of you who have done a Bible study, taught a Bible study, who have preached a sermon, you know the, the labor. You know the labor even when it's a relatively easy passage of text. And you, some of you know the labor when it is a challenging passage of text. So how do we deal with this? What does this mean? How does, this, does it apply to us? Was it a one-time event? I think one of the things we want to do is allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And I'm going to take us over to Hebrews chapter 8, because in Hebrews chapter 8, what we're going to see is um, the author of Hebrews quoting from Jeremiah. We could go back to Jeremiah, but just to save time, um, we'll just go over to Hebrews chapter 8. Because in Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. And he's talking about how God had made a covenant with his people and they had broken that covenant. That they could not keep the covenant that God had made. God says, I made a covenant with you and you broke it. You always broke it. In fact, you are unable to keep that covenant that I made with you. But there's going to come a day and I'm going to make a new covenant. And when I make that new covenant, one of the things that's going to typify or identify the new covenant is that I'm going to write my laws on the hearts of my people. So here, what we see in Hebrews chapter 8, I'll just read beginning with verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Same words that Joel uses. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, This is the blood of the new covenant. The Last Supper, Jesus is saying, I'm making a new covenant. And with the new covenant, I will write, the laws of God will be written upon people's hearts. But don't think what is being said here is that there will be no need for teachers. 
because Paul talks about the gifts of teachers, but rather this, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will bring the word of God through Christ by the Spirit of God so that the knowledge of God is known to all. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit will bring the word of God by the Spirit of God so that the knowledge of God is known by all. In other words, this would also um, be found in Acts 1.8. That is, the universal knowledge of God will be declared by the people of God. So I guess we could go here. When we think about prophecy, or at least the prophecy that, Jesus, that is being referred to here in the book of Acts, we should consider it in terms of God making himself known through his word in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what's happening. What's happening? People are speaking in unknown dialects and they are declaring the great deeds of God. That's what's going on. People are hearing in their own native tongue the great deeds of God and Peter is saying this is the prophecy that Joel talked about. That's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. God is making himself known through his word in Christ. Let me just a quick summary here. I know that's rather dense. But the question is this. People are, we're, we're hearing these people speak in, in languages that they have not learned and we're hearing them speak of the great deeds of God. What does this mean? Peter would say this, or I think he would say something like this. The age of Messiah has come. These are the last days. That's evidenced by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the least to the greatest, and they are declaring the mighty deeds of God so that all who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think that's a fair summary. The age of Messiah has come, evidenced by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh who proclaim the mighty deeds of God so that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember, do not miss do not forget this last part, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whatever's going on, the prophecy, the speaking in unknown languages, are all so for the purpose of leading to salvation of people. So that everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Peter is saying, this is that. You should know this. Joel talked about this. And then he starts talking about all of these really magnificent or incredible cosmic events. Things like the sun um, being darkened and the moon turning to blood and all of these really um, incredible cosmic events. And these are, have been greatly discussed. And, and there are probably two primary views. And the first view um, is that what Peter is talking about was already fulfilled at the crucifixion because the sun turned dark and darkness covered the earth, but the moon didn't turn to blood and we didn't see all, the, all of the things that Joel is talking about. I think the second option is better, that this is referring to that day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the day that Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. I think the context helps us to see that. He says... Um, um, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. In other words, there are cosmic signs that are going to precede the arrival of Jesus Christ. The last days have begun. When did they begin? They began with the coming of Christ. 
with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they will be completed with the second coming of Christ. These are the last days in between the day of God pouring out his spirit and the day of the sun being darkened and the reappearing of Jesus is this long corridor of opportunity to share the gospel with confidence that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. At the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, these last days began with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They will conclude with the reappearing of Christ preceded by these incredible cosmic signs and in between those two days. He's empowered us and given us opportunity to declare that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When we say everyone, we are not limiting, Peter is not limiting that to Jews or males. In other words, the everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is universal in scope, but it's personal in application. That means it's universal in scope. Anywhere you go in this world, you can declare the gospel and everybody, anywhere in part of the world who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. doesn't matter where you go or who you speak to. If they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But it is also individual in application. Every one. So I guess I should ask this question. Have you ever called upon the name of the Lord to save you? Because if calling on the name of the Lord is a necessary component of being saved, then it would follow, if I have not called on the name of the Lord, then I am not saved. So I have to ask, have you ever called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? And let me identify what that might mean. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. If we call upon the name of the Lord, we are going to repent of our sin and believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. We are going to believe the gospel. You see, folks, it's important for you to understand that we live in a universe that has been created by Almighty God. He made everything. He's lovingly created it and, it, and it was good. In fact, after he created male and female in his likeness, he said, it is very good. But I don't know, if you look around this world, you might notice it doesn't seem very good at times. Things seem to be pretty, pretty messed up. So you might wonder, what in the world happened? How did we go from very good to really messed up? What happened is a thing that the Bible calls sin. That is, that mankind rebelled against the very good God. God has given him everything that he would need, but mankind, you and I, have rebelled against God. And if you have ever violated any of God's commands, such as
loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Never fallen short, and I think every single one of us could say, yeah, I probably haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I've been selfish. I've acted out of my own interests. We have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible calls that sin. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. It is forever. And so we have this God who made everything right. But things got messed up and broken. Why? Because man sinned against God. You've sinned against God. And the wages of that sin is death. And you will be judged by a righteous and holy God. God is righteous and he is just. And he will judge those who break the law. It's only just to punish lawbreakers. However, the good news is this, that God sent his son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, put on flesh, dwelt among us, and lived an absolutely perfect life. He did not violate any one of God's laws. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loved his neighbor as himself, never once violated any of God's perfect commands. And he lived a perfect life and he gave himself as a substitute for you. When he died on the cross, he took the death that you deserved. He didn't deserve the death. He took the death that you and I deserved. He bore in his body your sin and my sin. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. But he did as a substitute. He took your place in that death. And your sins are then transferred, credited to Christ. He bore your sins in his body on the tree so that you might be the righteousness of God. He was righteous, transferred his righteousness to you. So, have you ever called upon the name of the Lord? Upon the Lord who will save you from your sin. Not only take your sin, but put in you his righteousness and declare you his son, his daughter, his child. He is taking you from being a rebel to a child of God. Have you ever called upon the name of the Lord? You were by nature a child of wrath, Paul tells us in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were children of wrath, died for our sins. Let's ask, have you ever called on the name of the Lord? Because if not, then you're not a child of God. And if you have, then you have all of the rights and privileges and benefits of being a child of God. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your old way of life. And trust in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that his death is sufficient to forgive you of your sins. Not your works, not your good deeds, not any of that, not your penance, not your pilgrimage, not your efforts, not not your kindness, those things will never save you. Jesus' sacrifice will save you from your sins. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? 
So as I'm getting ready to conclude this, I would just ask this. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Just come to the front of the church and we want to pray with you. I don't care how long you've been going to church. It means nothing. Because people who go to church, you don't get saved by going to church. You get saved by Christ. Repenting and believing the gospel. The gospel is the fact that God sent His one and only Son to bear your sins. And that by believing that, you will be saved. So I guess I'll conclude with this. This is the first part of Peter's Pentecostal sermon. And we're going to ask the same question that the hearers asked. What does this mean? What it means is that the last days have come. We are living in the last days. And in these days, people from every walk of life will declare the word of God by the Spirit of God so that the knowledge of God will be known to all. In these last days, people from every walk of life will declare the word of God by the Spirit of God so that the knowledge of God is known to all. And this declaration continues until the sun is darkened and the moon turns blood red and Jesus Christ returns in glory with all of his holy ones with him. And in between that time, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you stand and pray?